Andre and I just got back from New York City, where we were visiting for all the festivals, the theater festivals that happen in January. And we were lucky enough to meet up with playwright and director and general bon vivant, uh, Tina Satter, who we fortunately got an interview out of. And uh, she talked to us about her practice and her history and where she thinks downtown theater is now in New York City and where it's been. What's a bon vivant? It's a good vivant. Right. It's, a, it's like vivance, but vivant. I don't think that that's... Like vivacious? Yeah. I think that she's an okay vivant. Okay. I think she's a great vivant. I don't know what that is. She... Well, I think if you think about her history as a playwright uh, and a director, she directs all of her own plays. All right. So let's talk about some of the plays that she's done. Let's see. Um, well, Andre's seen more of them than I have because I uh, came to... You know, I moved to New York in 2010, and I lived there till 2014, and I saw all of her work during that period. But you saw her first play, right? I think I've seen all of the plays she's ever done. Right, which you say in the interview. You And uh, how would you, Andre, describe her early work? Well, she uh, got started doing a play called The Knockout Blow right after she got out of the MFA playwriting program at Brooklyn College, where she studied under Mac Wellman uh, in a program that produced... Uh, Writes like Young Gene Lee and, uh, and Jess Barbie Gallo went there. Yeah, and- Mac Wellman is pretty known as like the dude to uh, the dude that playwrights go to see if they're interested in experimental work. When we were uh, in New York just now at the the theater festivals that are uh, scheduled to coincide with APAP, the uh, the fest, which it's is a sort- funny, it's a funny. Uh- <laughs> It's a conference word. to. Um, it's a gynecological conference. <laughs> no. No, it's not. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a Moby Dick-themed gynecological. It's a conference for the Association of Performing Arts Presenters where uh, people come from uh, performing arts venues from all over the country and all over the world to see what is happening in New York City in the performing arts world and then try to book touring shows of those things. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for a few years now, and every year it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so uh, a few years ago... Under the Radar uh, got started over at... The uh, Public Theater. At the Public Theater, along with Coil Festival at... Uh, Soho Rep? No. No? At um, the Chocolate Factory. That's right. But... <laughs> Which is... The, the Quail Festival at the Chocolate Factory. They've... Uh, is it Quail or Coil? Uh, it's however you want to pronounce it. It's experimental theater. No, but I mean, is it named after the bird or like... No, it's co- it is Coil. coil. It's Coil. Okay, yeah. It's Coil. <laughs> it's cool. like, like like as in alaka Allah. <laughs> That's right. It's cool. Now the uh once they ha- had a lot of success uh a few years ago, then all of these festivals popped up all of a sudden all over the city in January and you had the prototype festival and you had uh the The Butt Festival. Yeah. There's not a butt festival. That's every month in New York. You have American Realness. Uh, you you have uh, special effects. Uh, you know we Is saw that for like plays that feature special effects. Like no. The, what was the one? The War Horse. None of the plays at these festivals involve human beings dressed like horses. Oh. And uh, you know the you know, number of festivals. There was even. Um, a festival that was housed at the Incubator uh, at the space that closed this past year in New York. And uh, so anyway... Uh, Is it mere places that have, like, Incubate always closing? In their yeah. Name? Like, well, everything's always like closing There was, like, an Incubate 
incubate or something in Chicago that was some kind of thing. Yeah. I guess the U of C incubator is not going to close. It's just that arts organizations are closing all the time yeah. because no one supports the arts. But anyway, well, Andre, we're trying to very, contextualize Tina. So They're not very good at, at so, funding the arts either. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the theater festivals that are happening in New York, now there's a half dozen. I expect next year to be 30 or 40. The Pretty much all of the New York based performers who are performing there have some sort of connection to the MFA playwriting program at Brooklyn College mm-hmm. in one way or another. And uh, so Tina Satter, um, you know, produced a, a show, Knockout Blow, uh, sort of a combination of um, musical numbers and uh, weird poetry and uh, funny costumes and sketch comedy. And she frequently features like a sort of like adolescent lingo or like like little girl talk. Well, she has the the people that work in her um, her theater company, uh, Julius and Frist, Eliza Bent, uh, Jess Barbagallo, who we mentioned, uh, Chris Jarmo often collaborates with them. And uh, these people are usually working in all of her plays and uh, creating a lot of work that, as Eleanor, as you were saying, typically uh, includes a lot of um, young women themes. Uh, yeah, and New England uh, has a has a come as like a sort of metaphor for adolescence sort of comes about as an environmental as an environment that sh- her mm. plays work in. Um, she is really interested in poetry, a la Mac Wellman. Mac Wellman is also a poet as along with being a playwright. Um, there's a certain sort of eth- like ethereal quality to some of her work, but the also they're very funny. Of artificial or non-artificial families, yeah. Uh, sc- queer themes, high schools, queerness, uh, uh, lesbian relationships. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, all female. A spaces. smorgasbord. Yes, of- a smorgasbord of lesbianism. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and uh, set, among other things. Among other things. Again, it's a crisp main backdrop it seems like if there's one thing that they all have in common it's um teenage girls talking about their feelings in a way that doesn't create any kind of uh like literally coherent uh narrative yeah i mean there are there's narrative in it in her work but it's not always as traditional or modernist as as other plays would be it's very much interested in tone um, a sort of like her, a lot of her stuff is mostly tone pieces and interested in creating a rhythm or a melody or a, or a language that's very um, feminine. And... I know, you see, I wonder about this idea about tone. Yes. Because I don't think that her stuff is going for tone in a way that is uh, new or different or, uh, uh, you know, separate from the way that other plays, even. Uh, I'm not saying that it is. I'm, I'm trying to describe well, what the work well, what is What does doing. it mean to you? that her her work engages in the generation of a tone. I think a tone piece is a useful description for a play because a tone piece means that it's going for, um, if not a monolithic aesthetic or atmosphere, but one that is consistent in a particular theme. So a tone play or a tone piece speaks to a aesthetic rather than narrative, um, cohesive like through line generally contemporary uh theater makers attempt to uh unify their pieces with aesthetic and narrative through lines in no matter what kind of material they're making Mm, i don't know because a lot of times those um 
the narrative will defy the the tone or the aesthetic through line. I'm, when I say tone piece, I'm, I'm specifically speaking to aesthetic rather than narrative in a play. Like the aesthetic overrides the narrative. With the idea that you're attempting to create a sort of a feeling in the yeah. audience rather than uh, engaging with them intellectually. Right. Which is not to say that Tina's work is anti-intellectual. But it's different from, say, so very like intellectual. playwrights totally. like Stephen Belber or uh, David Mamet or Aaron Sorkin. Or yeah, but I mean, some of these things, like, they, they have a Ware. tone to them that, that evolves. I guess I, I think that tone is actually a result of postmodern performance because it's operating on the realm of the senses and it isn't just trying to tell a story in, like, a modernist sort of way. Now, just, just to clarify, we're talking about, like, those plays where it's just like black curtains and like a stage and then people in like civilian clothes, right? There's like oh, no, no, sets no, no. Tina's stuff has incredibly intricate and oh, enormous yeah. spectacles. Uh, football, for example, a show that uh, she did at... Football the, in the Pony Palace. At the, in the Bushwick Star in January of 2011, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, was uh, in... You know, included uh, football choreography by William Burke. Uh, everybody's wearing football costumes, like foosball or like, like American football, football. football, American football, and they're uh, you know they they put artificial turf down oh, nice. on the field. Uh, you know, great. there's a, uh, an enormous there's a a, a full size uh, like marching band there on the stage performing. Uh, like Rolling Stones and Lady Gaga songs uh, as the score for the piece. Uh, you know, the... Did they play Louie Louie? I love when marching bands do that. No, no. It, they, it was just a marching band arrangements of Lady Gaga songs. Oh. It was pretty awesome. Big horn section. A hell of a thing to see, actually. Uh, you know, that was one thing that always was strange to me about the way that that show was produced because it included so much pop music well, that's why they could never tour with it, right? They mm-hmm. toured with it plenty. Apparently, oh, so it then... was recently put on by a high school somewhere in Texas. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, well, I don't know. I, they must not have been using the Lady Gaga score then. I, I don't, don't know what they were using, but that this is something that we actually talked with Tina about in the interview about, uh, you know, traditionally a play when you uh, send it out, you know, you publish it, you right. you uh, distribute it amongst people so that they can go put it on. What all you've got really is a few brief instructions about what kinds of things to expect on the stage, uh, what the characters do when they're moving from one side of the stage to another or how they interact with each other, and then the text of what they say to each other and that there isn't a whole lot else. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I- I'm sort of fascinated by the uh, unexpected commercial appeal of her work. I mean, it makes sense because it's funny and great, but it's strange to me that it has latched on. Do you think it has to do with the youth culture aspects that it's been so popular? Well, uh, she goes out of her way, it seems, when you are watching the shows, to uh, escape uh, participation in a mainstream culture. And this this makes her incredibly cool, which makes her marketable, which makes her the culture. But I think uh, Lady Gaga and whoever the other one was... Kanye West, the Rolling uh, Stones, Rolling Mm -hmm. Stones, that that's engaging popular culture. That's sure, but uh, you know, turning a Lady Gaga song into a marching band tune, you know, that's a that's hip, that's cool. Mm -hmm. It's like wearing Cosby sweaters or something. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying. Yeah, I like a good Cosby sweater. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but there's a, a. 
Yeah, there was That's an, engaging popular culture. There was an article in uh, the AV Club today about uh, whether uh, Dr. Hibbert from The Simpsons would have to be retired because he was a reference to Bill Cosby. Because of the sweaters and because of... <laughs> well, he's a reference to Cliff Huxtable, though. Right, which is Bill Cosby. I mean, th- oh, those but, two are... But one's an actor. Right. No, I know what you mean, but like, there's a there, that's the problem of Bill right. Cosby and why people are having such a hard time yeah. with, with Family Matters is because he's... Family Matters? Family Not Family Matters. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> are you thinking about Reginald <laughs> Bell Johnson? Because he never hurt anybody. He never did anything oh, to anybody. He did, he did co-star myself. in a movie called Who the Man? I hate myself so much. <laughs> I can't believe I just said Family Matters. Well, there's, fair, that there's like famous, a million. There's that it's famous episode though where uh, all I'm thinking of are just family shows. Where Cliff Huxtable right cornered Urkel and fingered him. What is the name of that fucking show? What the Cosby? Show? The Cosby Show. <laughs> Were you having a hard time figuring out what the name of the show was that I, Bill Cosby was on? I hate myself. It, well, it's one of those things. It's like so there that you're like, what yeah, was that Cosby you, Show Eric. called? Thank you, Eric. So anyway, I bring it up because you know I was thinking about you know the the way that. So much culture, including the stuff that Tina does, mm-hmm. it just so casually references oh, yeah. other mm-hmm. aspects of pop culture, and so that are so ephemeral too. Yeah. You know, they're so it's so temporal, right? And so, like The Simpsons, you know, like those old episodes of The Simpsons, like the episode, for example, where uh, they go to New York City and they. Uh, I was thinking about that. And Homer, you guys, you guys were like Homer. Homer parks his car between the World Trade Centers and gets it towed, right? And that was one of my first thoughts on 9-11 was like, they can't show that episode ever again. <laughs> right. Oh and so like what happens with these plays? You know, plays mm-hmm. like you assume you write it down into a piece of text, it gets published, and then it just survives for hundreds of years, just like, you know, Coriolanus or uh Cymbeline. Did you just say coral anus? Leave leave your anus out of this, Andre. All you right. always try to drag in your anus. The Tempest or the Scottish play. All right, I get it. Now. Wait, which one's the Scottish one? It's the one where they're all the like Cosby show. Yar. Yar. Wait. The Cosby show, that's the Scottish play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right, because it's cursed. Yes, exactly. Because oh. of what happened to Lisa Bonet. <sighs> yeah. Lisa Bonet. Yeah. Bone no. Bonet. <laughs> So when a sh- when a show God, like fucking moron, like Eric. football, I thought that was my job now, here. And they were like, Eric, we hired you to be our moron. <laughs> football in the Pony Palace, the Tina Satter play, it includes several scenes which, which appear to be ripoffs, right? Not just rip, no, like, not ripoffs. Like you're right. Ripped from the headlines, like quote for quote, direct yeah. recreations of scenes from Friday the Night first Lights. season of Friday Night Lights. Yeah, hmm. and but you know with slight changes. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, listeners, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I'd be curious. It, when you, listeners, when do you, you guys tie, watch Friday Night Lights? When you tie your work into other people's work, then you're mm-hmm. tying your destiny to them, right? Mm-hmm. You're hitching your wagon to their stars, right? Is that is that a star? So when some but sometimes you surpass it. Like I always like to bring up the. Uh, the uh, Radiohead song off their first album, which actually is named after fucking Jerky Boys bit. Named pa- after what? Pablo Honey is a bit by the Jerky Boys. Who are the Jerky Boys? Oh, these were a, a bunch of guys who Prank did- Prank phone callers? They that... would put out CDs and they would uh, they would call somebody up, uh, hey, Jerky, hey, you know, and- Well, and there, and there were one they was- Were they vaudevillians? Like, this they, It was weird. sort of a vaudeville it kind was, of an and act, they would yeah. be like- they were like, hello, Pablo, Pablo, honey, 
please come home. Oh my that God. was the bit that Radiohead, 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 fucking so, named their first album off. But Radiohead they aren't also even talking heads. Radiohead, their they, their, yeah, their work that. is full of references to pop culture. Okay, computer being a direct yeah. reference throughout the album to computers to uh, <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What? And their name even coming as yeah. uh, from that the song, yeah. from the song Radiohead by the Talking Heads from yeah. the movie uh, True Stories. True Stories, yeah. right? Yeah. What I because the okay, wow, my Radiohead is blown. Um, <laughs> but also, would just I like the song Anyone Can Play Guitar, where it's like I it's, love that song, and he's like anyone. or he's like I wanna be wanna be Jim Morrison, and and how they have like completely. Uh, surpassed the no the reasonable person believes that Jim Morrison should be brought up in a conversation with Radiohead. Obviously, yeah. Radiohead is an extraordinary mm-hmm. group of musicians. That and Jim Morrison was not. He was a, he was a drunk douchebag who with great hair who got super fat very quickly as soon as he put out one good record. Yeah, but you know None... you know what Elvis Elvis was a fucking pudgy fuck. I heard this recently though, but like Lisa Presley. Lisa Marie. Lisa, no, who's the Priscilla Presley? Oh, Priscilla, yeah. Because um, this was back before the internet, so you could actually fight back and get images. She fought to to get. She like bought, sued, or destroyed like all the fat Elvis photos to protect his image. Oh, that's wonderful! But you know whose photos I'm never going to destroy? Tina Satters. Hi everyone, welcome to Noisy Ghost. I, Eleanor Russell, am here with Tina Satter. A renowned downtown theater maker, director, writer, actor, occasionally. Um, and she is just coming off of a wonderful week-long run of her new show, Ancient Lives. And I am here to talk with her about the role of sound in experimental and downtown theater. Hi, Tina. Hi. How would you say that the role of sound or how sound is deployed or used or negotiated in downtown and experimental theater has changed since you started making theater so how many years ago? I started like sort of actively doing this in New York City um, in 2008 so that's six years. Um, years. Well I I'm not totally sure because how to answer that but I I think that I've always been really interested in like having a musical score and of course work in every show I've made with the composer and sound designer Cristiano. So it's a really big element of my work and usually from more of like a musical idiom, but we've gotten more into like a concept of sound design, I think in our work. But I say that because that's made me pay more attention now just sound in other people's shows and but I don't I don't know if I can totally speak to a trajectory but I mean there's like I think that like notable sound contrasts are like in elevator repair services work Mm -hmm. they have those like really talented sound guys like Ben Williams and John Collins was the sound designer at the Worcester group for eight years so they have this really like they're deep into sound and they use it sort of in a like you know, it's kind of like a funny, almost goofy way, but and it's really kind of present to like make jokes or, or but it, but in a, a wonderful way because I think like a fully work. sort of thing. yeah yeah, but in a really intelligent kind of way. Well, yeah. I know that the Worcester Group have used Foley for a long time in like their work because of their close attention to cinema and right, film and their right. work. So, do you think that there's this 
is there a sort of route that the Worcester Group provides in terms of sonic experience in downtown theater? Like, is it can we, like anything else? Yeah, I'll go back to them. I mean, I think I'm sure I'm sure that it does because I think it's just still a fact that everything still kind of comes after them. Um, did you? I don't know if you're aware of the company. There, I don't think they're still very active, but they were called Thirty One Down, Mm-mm, and Ryan Hossupple, who's still a pretty active, like he's a really intelligent, like theater tech kind of guy and he's super into sound and super into video and he's just someone who works on a bunch of people's shows uh he's worked a bunch with Mallory Catlett and is kind of Mm -hmm. in with Jim Finley and those guys but 31 Down was really interesting because it was a company sort of that first and foremost sound was almost the driving thing and these really cool sonic things so he's actually someone if you're keeping on sound that he's really smart and would be interesting to talk to and totally in the downtown world um so I remember being when I first they were around like the last six or seven years and I think are on a little bit of a hiatus or something. But I remember first learning that when I learned of them, they felt like they were doing something different by privileging the sound design to lead the show. Because I think like Worcester Group, that cinematic element, it's folded right. in, like really layered in with everything else. Um Yeah, I mean I think I really I pay so much attention to sound and I think you know, there's like an element where it's like, I mean, I think of our work in particular, it's like sort of almost unfolds like musically or poetically or dance right. driven. So the, the score has, the sound design has a very particular element in that versus shows where it's bolstering narrative in a more square or traditional yeah. way. Can I make an observation actually? Sure. I, I, I find that I, I think in the Worcester, the Worcester group seems to approach sound, like I said, cinematically in a way that like sort of, reaffirms this idea that sound design is like a cinematic thing and not necessarily constitutive or like um, native to theater. And I think that your work sort of challenges challenges that like um, position as of the Worcester group where like I see like the way you use music and musicality, although in, na- ancient, right. in ancient lives, I found there was actually like a lot more soundy yeah, sort of like yeah. M83 music-y things right. happening in there. Um, and I, you sort of... It, it's very theatrical. Like right. even even when you have video, like you right. did in Ancient Lives, right. the sound is not part of the video. The sound is part of this like a- this theatrical world of daydreams and and fantasies and worries. You know, yeah, that's part of this yeah. like childhood aesthetic and New England aesthetic. Yeah. So I, I don't. I mean, I, I'm sort of like wondering now about like this whole Worcester Group uh, origin story and if it really makes sense, even or if it's just constantly or if it is the, truly the, has the primacy, but it's the origin story but you're just challenging it right I I mean I think in like even the tangible ways that like I mean and I don't totally know this so you might know or other but I mean I think I'm sure they're one of the first companies to have the sound guy basically sitting there where you saw him work I mean their tech people became really present and I think that's a super interesting idea where on Broadway and all that stuff traditionally it's hidden and they made it like here you're watching the guys in their yeah. t-shirts exposed the yeah. ontology of the like, whole apparatus yeah yeah and not just it, i mean i was going to say dj the show it's more yeah. than that but there's like that element and i think that it also made that thing that stuff i mean i think to certain people seem really cool too which is just yeah. a funny thing to consider around those elements where they're not just weird designers but they're like these kind of like rock star techies or something that right there's yeah there is like that aesthetic <laughs> of coolness that plays out through sound and I feel like in your shows there's definitely like a coolness aesthetic that plays out so- sonically mostly because from what I can tell yeah. Chris Jarmo is a really talented designer right, and he's really good at right. writing music but it's not like that's sort of like too hip like so no. hip like it's 
cool and that it's beautiful and it's true it's yeah. not like cool and hip you I mean, know we've worked really hard i mean one thing i think and i don't i think it has different uh levels that it's been successful or not to viewers but worked really hard to not make that stuff i mean nothing is ever put in just to be there ever i mean and that's why it was right like, it's never arbitrary yeah especially i mean it's a separate convo but using video in this new show was something that really organically came to the project and with sound it's I mean, I'm so interested in sound, but it's not like, what's the sound element going to be for this? It's like, oh, this sound element needs to be in here, if you know the difference, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And then, and constantly working to not make it seem like Chris is just a cool guy at the stage. I mean, obviously he's dressed in a giant furry <laughs> badger costume, which was dramaturgical and a sort of always cut down mm-hmm. that, that tech guys at the side of the stage because I just feel like that's seen a lot and I think it right. frames work in a certain way and I, I love Worcester Group work and I love ERS work, but I want to like deconstruct a little bit the way we have thought of how such present sound is used so yeah yeah and make it not such an institution you know yeah yeah and back to I think something you said that I really appreciate hearing and feel happy about that it's so woven in to the piece and the moods of the piece and is creating the like sort of intangible narratives I'm really interested in in a really Mm -hmm. big way so yeah the um narrative element of your show uh, and I'm wondering about other shows too. Like you, me- you mentioned, you mentioned a bunch of theaters and mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, what else? What have you seen this season that sort of used sound in a way that you found particularly interesting, or even in like recent oh, seasons? You know what a cool one to talk about is the one that that Ryan Hossipel, who I referenced, worked on Mallory Catlett's show. Mm-hmm. I it might be called This Is the End, and it was at the <laughs> Chocolate Factory. It was an amazing uh, meditation and like. Uncle Vanya sort of thing and she used actors in their 70s it it was incredible but I mean the set was amazing you really should look this up but it was it was live scored by like this weird sound DJ in the middle of the thing like playing off video I mean it was super and I mean I actually haven't seen anything quite like it because Mm. he was like it was almost like he was in the middle of a party DJing with really cool video effects but it was so much richer and actually smaller than that and then was being complimented by this like abstracted but really potent and emotionally real acting by these actors in their 70s who yeah. were playing the the um playing all those actors so um that was one of the more notable now that you asked that more notable sound things I've definitely seen in the past year um yeah, I mean, I think, and then, oh, Dave, well, this is a whole different thing, but Dave Malloy's Ghost Quartet right. is an incredibly special piece, and it's a musical piece, so I don't know, you know, that has its own thing, of course, but mm-hmm. that was really special. Cool. Andre, you look like you were about to say something. Andre Kello is also here in the studio, everybody. Yeah, hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, I have uh, been watching uh, your work for as long as I've been uh, aware that you were making work. Uh, I think I the first time I saw something that you made was a video that you made of Jess Barbagallo wearing a werewolf costume with a wig. Yes. I think no werewolf costume, but that black wig. Yeah. Uh, that was probably right. And uh, it was a piece that eventually got turned into uh, your first uh, stage piece here in New York, which was the Knockout Blow. Yes, yes. Uh, that was performed at uh, Hero Art Center, I think. We first did it at, on what was still the Ontological Hysteric. It wasn't the Incubator R. Arts R. yet. Mm. And then had a second run at here. Right. Now, um, a lot of the uh, the way that people talk about, uh, you know, how uh, experimental theater in New York is uh, related to, like, the larger history of theater, people often talk about uh, the poor theater, right? Uh, 
Jersey Kurtowski and the, the idea that uh, you know the the important thing isn't uh, putting on an extraordinary spectacle where you're creating all of this uh, fireworks and uh, you know big dance numbers and whatever, but uh, to get at something that's sort of uh, magical and transformative and possibly that you have any easier time uh, in a space that's uh, uh, poor, right? Less uh, sophisticated. Um, now, poor. yes. Poor. Uh, in New York, obviously, everybody's poor. Right, right. Right, because you, there's not enough money in the Unless world. Unless they're insanely rich. Yeah, right. but even then, in theater, you, even, you're still poor somehow. Even, <laughs> even the super-duper rich people in New York are going into the, the deli, and, and they're like, what do you mean $6 for a bottle of orange juice? That's right. crazy. We're so, like, beat down. Yeah. Now, um, how does that make you feel about the way that uh, technology is used because technology costs a lot of money yeah i mean that that's a, a very interesting question i think i mean sort of to anecdotally talk about it in relation to my this recent show where we use more technology than we ever have and are at the kitchen which is this really technology equipped space actually is because that, that wasn't originally when it was right, in, when it was in right. Soho. I mean, it was just a really, loft. Really, a fascinating I, like uh, tra- trajectory of the kitchen too. That it, what its roots were to what it's become. Which I and I still think actually its heartbeat is those roots. So it's it's been really interesting working in there and sussing out the sort of space it's in. But um, you know, I but clearly I'm still interested in a pretty awkward, or at, le- at least in this show for sure, still kind of an awkward space and a sort of let's make the show look and feel. It's pretty. It's still a pretty raw, but I mean, I think it's an elegant and beautiful set that Andrea Mincic made, but it's designed to feel pretty raw. And because we were using technology and Chris is doing this incredible sound that, we, you know, he it's a really sophisticated sound design, actually, that if you is like he could speak to this. And, but like I am noticing it more and more, which is like certain like chimes come out of this uh, speaker. I mean, it's really like very highly designed of where the sound is coming from and the speakers in the room. But all that said, we purposefully built the show not using every single toy the kitchen had. Like, for a couple reasons. We If if the show has another life, most of the places we would go to wouldn't even have that stuff and we can't afford to bring it. And it was still sort of an ethos of let's not just go crazy with all the... I mean, they have tons of video stuff that would even make what we do what you saw look better and be easier. And we just purposefully really tightened down to like, we want to do this, but how's, what's the simplest kind of lo-fi way we could do it? You know, I was actually talking with Aaron Mullen, Worcester Group stage manager Aaron Mullen recently <laughs> about this show, um, because in, specifically in regard to the video, right. uh, because in t- you use the live video feed sometimes and then other times you don't but it'll like simulate a live right, video feed. Right. And then other times you'll just have like, um, I don't want to like, like just like still images. Yes. You know, which is like, it was so like, even though you have all this stuff at your disposal, like you're saying it, like they're still just like still images of like baby raccoons. Right. Like that's like, it's like you're explicitly going out of your way in order to like, to not take advantage of it. So I noticed yeah. that for sure. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I felt for that for was two reasons for me. I don't, me and the video designer, Alain Bakrak, who I think did an incredible job, but this was the first real video design he did um, at all for a theater and for a show of the scale. But like, we didn't know, I, I didn't want to push beyond what we thought we could do. And I also wanted it to feel not dumb, but be sort of simple in its, like it, 
it was like a dramaturgical reason to feel like it was the brain wave. Did you have a dramaturg or did you, no. you're just saying you dramaturg? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, kind of, it becomes a group dramaturgy and there's other, right. but um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was to not like outpace ourselves because we already knew it would be ambitious to even figure out what we needed to do within our abilities and then purposefully. So yeah, we were really cognizant of what we were like going to try to do which felt even ambitious but yeah like I also felt like it really worked I mean I was really excited by the mixture of that stuff you just described and Mm -hmm. once especially now that it's up and running it feels like it's a great I mean I think if we did it again we'd continue to refine a little bit here and there but it feels like a really good draft of this so video wise yeah cool you said that it would be difficult to uh, if you were to tour with this show, and I'm sure a lot of people are considering this question. You know, this weekend here we are in New York City during right. APAP. You know, everybody's thinking about uh, you know how to bring a show to somewhere else. Uh, your uh, show this time and in other times, uh, they've included a lot of elements that seem to be difficult to document on the page. Yes. So. Uh, what do you do when you want to be specific about like because it seems like you take such a uh, a clear role in uh, you know organizing every aspect of the production uh, do you imagine that if somebody else were to put this show on that you would have to um, take extraordinary measures in order to communicate to them uh, what you wanted with the original uh, that's a really, really good question. And I honestly, I'm so in the fray of just getting through the next four shows of this. But that's always the question with the kind of work I've made. And this one, uh, to your point, has even more details because of the video mostly. And Chris's really rich, more than ever rich and present sound design of what we would do. I mean, with our shows in the past, there's always this period where we wait and either and most most chances have continued to do the show ourselves in various capacities for a couple of years before it's considered something other people would do um and only a couple of shows have then gone uh, uh, pony palace in the um in the pony palace football oh my god i can't even believe i can't remember the name of my that is where i am at this point uh has had other productions and so yeah it's just a kind of like where I we were not involved at all and it's just I gave really specific notes on the feeling of the music but we decided in that instance to not micromanage exactly that the music be what we had made with it and it felt like for that show that was fine as long as it had this feeling that we wrote out in some notes this one I can't even tell you yet what we'll decide if and when it gets to the point where we're like here's how we describe how it should be done like if we'd be specific about sound and video and that the set actually look like this. I, I don't know yet where, how we'll do that. So. In the book of uh, Seagull Thinking of You mm-hmm. that uh, was published uh, uh, in 2013? Uh, January 2014, actually. January yeah. 2014. Uh, there are a lot of really uh, beautiful, uh, specific uh, instructions about things like uh, stage direction. And you even included um, makeup sketches that were originally created for the productions that you did. But... Uh, for example, the video that's used of the um, skateboarding. Right. Now, that isn't documented with nearly the kind of um, precision 
as the uh, some of the other elements of the like the way that you would talk about the way that somebody moves their hand across somebody else's face, but then uh, other elements uh, maybe left out altogether. Yeah, that's a really, really, really good point. <laughs> Actually, right now I'm like, conceiving of the first time that we didn't really deal with that video. So, um, it's I don't yeah it's just these are it's crazy when you go to like even now with ancient lives which are in the middle of so we get these requests you know the people that are going to come review often want a script that script is such an insane mess right now because we've literally been changing lines literally I mean through through Wednesday night like after Monday and Tuesday we had rehearsals all day before the shows and we're continuing to change so these things are so dynamic um and definitely other stage directions so so it's really dynamic through the premiere of the show and then even after that then I'm kind of move on to the next project and then something comes up where someone else wants a script or that amazing opportunity to publish those and I return to cleaning them up and it always feels like I still don't know that I'm doing it thoroughly enough or exactly what my I don't think I've refined totally what my approach is to like documenting these plays in that way and so I it's really interesting to consider consider that and there's so many interesting ways people are now capturing non-traditional plays on the page I think it's a really uh cool dynamic spot now with the publishers like 53rd State Press and other places publishing works by people like Nature Theater and Big Dance that like aren't don't read as straight narrative texts and how do you capture what the energy or feeling mm. or ideas were? Well, it seems like, you know, there's that whole like from page to stage thing, <laughs> except I guess you do from stage to page. And I wanted to think about that in that super cheesy segue, because I'm curious about the role of poetry in your work and how poetry is as a um, style of writing necessarily more variable and negotiable um, in terms of its um, like existence like is it on do you speak it is it you know a power of elocution and I'm curious about like how poetry uh, and the words themselves and the way the actors say the lines and the the phonic qualities the sonic qualities of the words themselves how they become a sort of other kind of sound design within the show yeah that's a really smart interesting thing you're saying like phonic sonic stuff with the plays because just and I don't again you guys are like making me think of even so much stuff around documenting these or considering them if it gets there where other people want to do these plays but which would be a little bit down the road but like for instance Seagull which had some pretty specific stage directions as Andre alluded to or sort of poetic stage directions to capture like what the scene where they speak all in Russian should do rhythmically and stuff or but in fake Russian yeah in fake Russian but I don't talk about the very specific way those actors I worked with for a year and a half on that project were directed to deliver this kind of poetic line and it was you know directed to be very presentational and cut against it and I um, went to a school that had me come as a guest artist which was amazing but they had there as part of this day of work that they did and it was open to people on campus they presented a scene from Seagull and I mean and they, and they butchered it and they butchered it and it's not their fault at all but it was like because they that those that language is delicate if at all not done were they speaking in poet voice they big i mean they were freshmen of course, yeah, yeah. yeah no no no. i'm just i'm just curious because if yeah. that's the tendency yeah to go and to. it was and i was like i i was like i can't i can't listen to this or watch this but it was so not their problem and i don't want to make i mean siegel was very particular in the juxtaposition of a kind of language with a, the way that piece the energy of it in its final form directed by me was so 
you know, very specifically paced and highly directed. And I think purposefully the next two shows I made were a little less like that. I mean, I think Ancient Lives is a super hard show because even for the actors who I'm working with on now because of balancing out these quotes and the poetics and the teen speak and the TV movie language, like, but I think even within that, there's a little more breathing room than there was in Seagull where you could play around with it a little more and not maybe kill it without knowing exactly like when to turn your head and how many pauses to have between each line and not to put anything on it, which was the necessary like quality to get the words to sound right in Seagull. Um, yeah. All right. Um, but that's that's specific to Seagull and not necessarily to... I, I think it was highly specific to Seagull. I do think you're calling out something that's probably pretty... Um, important to all the shows I've made so far. I just feel like there's such like a uh, I don't know, not like Eileen Miles, but like some, like a, like a New York poet sort of quality to so much so much of your work that I could see like I don't know, like I'm not an actor, but I could totally see myself going into like, like I don't know, like I know there's no point in the right. in the play where they say like like ancient lives, like I don't know, right. like you would get into you could fall into that trap so easily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't but I'm also this is why I'm not an actor. <laughs> Me no, me too. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. You're an actor. You were in my movie. Oh yeah, I did. Oh do that. oh, she's good in your movie. Everyone, go to andrekello.com right now. <laughs> um, we'll finish listening to this. Yeah, there's there other because I yeah, you'll tell log was really exciting too. But um, what was I gonna say? Oh, I mean, I the other person, and I don't know how often. I don't think they're done a lot, and I actually don't know Richard Maxwell. Like, I don't know if that's his choice that the plays don't happen again. I'm assuming it is because he's been such a pretty major dramatist. But I would be curious to see how those would read. I mean, they're not quite as like liltingly, poetically written on the page right. as mine. But there's a very specific way he has those. The pres- timbre and yeah, the and approach. like nothing put on those lines and like you know. So by when he directs them, which so anyways, it, that's all really interesting space to me. That sonic phonic quality mm-hmm. with a director and his original production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to highlight the relationship between poetry and downtown theater and how that plays out sonically. That's what the point of that question is, <laughs> I guess. Uh, let me think. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your next, what, like, how you approach um, teaching uh, with, like, you uh, how you balance your role as a director and as a teacher. I don't know if this really plays out in terms of, like, sonics, but... Um, well, it's something I'm curious about because there yeah. are so many directors that are then asked to teach and how that works and how they feel, how it's the difference between teaching and directing. It just seems so weird. You know? When I teach like this workshop I do, which I think will bleed into the kind of work I do. I mean, I'm teaching at University of Michigan as a guest playwriting teacher next semester and I'm doing workshops. So it'll actually be students bringing in writing and then we'll talk about them. But a big component, I mean, or a big component of the workshops and my approach to teaching currently has been... Um, one of the exercises I give, well, one exercise I give is like recall a moment that could be really major or banal that like happen that you know that you remember happening in your life and just like document it in two pages and it can be a dialogue or it can be not but like it can literally be like you went to or buy something at the deli and a, like nothing happened or a weird thing happened so that's always like an interesting because usually people do render it in dialogue and usually they choose the banal often and it's instead wait choose the banal instead of the weird yeah, yeah or just i mean or once i say that the people get intrigued by that which is sort of what i want them to do because i think that can be really interesting mm-hmm. and then the second another part of that my like like generative writing exercises is 
think of a way one person that you know talks, like your grandmother, your best friend, and write three sentences in their way they speak, but not not necessarily the words they use, but like the rhythm. Like, because, you know, I have a pretty specific way intonation, of like yeah. this East Ghost Valley girl thing or whatever. To, but like, <laughs> I'm really interested in that. Or, or everyone has this really specific rhythm to their speech. And that, if you can try to capture that for certain characters it's a really fascinating way to me that's a more interesting way of character than like he's a sad boy who stays in his room it's like what if his sentences are often like said like this so I actually do use something very specific to like language sound as like a teaching tool and it's really when people can click into what that means you can get it's just a really interesting early generative device I can see that you know I feel like this uh, when I was in writing my master's thesis at Brooklyn College I my advisor would ask me to vary my sentence structure because I have a tendency to overuse, um, like, uh, what are those things? The like M dash, like, because oh, yeah. it's like yes. a secret parentheses that you right. don't have to compensate for. And Emily so it's Dickinson like, loved them. I FYI. know. <laughs> Thank you, Emily and, Dickinson, who you used uh, in, text your, in your show. Yeah. And like, but so it's like long sentence, short sentence, long sentence, short sentence. And it's like, it's so not organic. It's not anything like that. So I'm interested to see how you can adapt like that sort of like rhythm quality to like other forms yeah. of writing. Yeah, well, the, if, you, if you can choose, like the purpose of that, my exercise is almost to, to, to be arrhythmic. Like you, if you mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. one person, I mean, it just, and it doesn't even have to be applied so directly that this character is always going to use the way your grandmother drew out vowels. But like it just opens you up as a writer to conceive of, other of people that and, and not other just characters. basing it directly on what the words are or what their psychological character is but like building and yeah um but it's it's I mean I was talking about that with Richard Maxwell and he was like if you figure out the secret to getting actors to do that let me know because I'm dying <laughs> to figure out and I was like yeah I don't know actually on stage it's not a practice but for me that I can totally push but it's something I was using as a Writer writing thing and it, it was kind of effective in some of the workshops I did that makes a lot of sense to me what do you think I'm interested to know um, now from what I recall uh, I got the chance uh, last year to visit uh, the kitchen when you had an open rehearsal for Ancient Lives and it was really interesting to see you working and it, it seemed that you were um, and I think that you've talked about this uh, you had started with the text of Romeo and Juliet is that right that was a very early text, yeah, before I really knew what this project would be at all that we were playing around with, yes. And eventually you incorporated The Crucible and, as we said, Emily Dickinson and and then also uh, dialogue that you had written and a, a narrative that you created uh, based around uh, what exactly? Um, and the, the other th- text that's in there that is not mine is, or that's like, kind of in there or I'm playing off as our 17th century captivity narratives because I think they're really interesting um once well once I had the Romeo and Juliet and we were filming the actors saying it or in the early residencies just for our own documentation I got the really dumb idea that like oh they have a tv station because there was something so we were filming ourselves doing it so um then I had this I so then but I like them doing the Romeo and Juliet, but I definitely didn't want to use too much of it or do any sort of like Romeo and Juliet the way I had done the seagull. So it was taking these texts I was interested in and like really in a sort of ob- like the, to me it feels obvious, but like I would make these group of people who set up a TV station, but that were inspired by and drew on these texts. And then I was like, oh, it's these students and they have this teacher. So my interest in those texts led to me finding a way to have a container 
where some of that language could be in the play but and be in it in a sort of plot way where it's not just alluded like there's the idea that they are like they use these texts as like inspiration or as fodder um so then it's important that these that the crucible and romeo and juliet that these are um plays that high school kids read i mean yeah i that you know <laughs> yeah and i didn't even think of it that way at all but it totally works that they're i mean that is what they are so it's duh yeah <laughs> wait can you tell me more about 17th century captivity narratives and how yes. that is a thing well it be, it came from um so i was you know i had the Romeo and juliet which was very lightly in there and for a time not even really in there but we returned it i was really interested in the nurse character and then oh. afterwards working on this i like ha- reread the crucible and that was like, oh, my God, come on. It has to be in there. It's like it's so obviously and dumb that it's in there, but it's perfect because I wanted this dark kind of. And I was rereading those courtroom scenes. They're just so dark, bloody language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, actually God. hilarious, obviously. Yeah. Um, but anyway, somewhere along the lines of me knowing, you know, this point, the show was way back. This is like a year or so ago. It's like, oh, it's going to be cheerleaders in the woods and blah, blah, blah. And Jess Barbagallo, who um, is an amazing performer that I work with and an amazing writer and essayist and just you know, uh, I think a really, really important thinker and artist in our world. And again, one of my main collaborators, but they recommended to me this book called My Emily Dickinson by the essay. Susan Howe. I've read that. So that, that's where they're from. So then I was like, and it was one of those things you come across that like brings all your ideas. You're like, yes, this is like poetry and feminism and like people who are secluded out in the woods because there's all this talk of the woods in that book. Mm -hmm. And because she was talking how Emily would have indirectly known of captivity narratives or direct so anyways it all comes from that book which i just highly recommend so i love talking about it because it, yeah it's, it's a great it's a great book and i love thinking about your piece especially like in terms of the woods as this atmosphere as a companion piece to the current um monstrosity on, on cinema <laughs> screens right now into the woods like yeah this it's is really funny really like, like to think about that a lot i was, I was honestly i was thinking about that actively as i was watching the show um so do you think that like in terms of the sound design of ancient lives and of your other shows, the role of the woods or like as a space or like wherever Seagull was, where was Seagull? Seagull was like supposed to be inside a snow globe. <laughs> oh, that's right. It was inside of a snow globe. And I so mean, very conceptually, no one. Yeah, right, would, right. <laughs> Do you, you didn't like build a, like a giant snow globe. Do you see a connection between space and sound in your work? And is that something that you talk with to Chris about? Or does a Chris come to you about that? Or how does that work? I do see a connection because Chris, who's like just really smart, raises it. So like, I mean, I kind of, I brought up the snow globe thing because that was a very, very in, like personal conceptual thing for me. I'm like, this is how I can conceive of this show. It's happening inside this um cracked snow globe where we've put in the play the seagull and our actors and shook it up and then this is what kind of slowly falls down and is the play you see and but when I explained that to Chris and the designers very early on Chris is like oh I love that we need like kind of he just he made like a snow globe sort of core sound which is sort of this just a nothingness but it really opened up for him the sound design of that show and so and he just thinks that way so as soon as it was like ancient lives is set in the woods and there's these ideas he immediately was like cool i that is what i will draw from like his ideas of so the space comes first when you're telling him and then he creates sounds from there yeah i mean and i'm not like make it like the woods i always i'm just like he he really clicks into like or really small things i'll say that are usually things i am telling myself to keep myself on track with what the idea is because often they are a bit insane (laughs) what the leaps I'm trying to make within them and 
so I'm like okay remember that it's about teen movies and the woods and this but when I I can't even think of a really good example but I'll give some weird specific note to myself or to the actors and Chris will hear it and be like oh that's what you mean that and yeah he'll really draw from like sort of a conceptual nugget that has nothing to do in my mind with sound and then but of course then becomes a really important sinew of the sound because yeah yeah. everything about your process seems to me very environmental and very concerned with a particular milieu of people you work again with the same people over and over again it becomes sort of uh you know and some of some of that insularity comes out in the piece in a really beautiful intimate special way but I'm curious if you ever see like sort of the pitfalls of of a approach like that or is like all art has to be made in this like this tiny enclave or do you ever like think that you need to take a step back and like look outward ever yeah I think there are pitfalls I mean I think one of the criticisms of Siegel in particular that was way too insular and it literally was laden and was purposefully made that way and I'm like super proud of that piece and it had a beautiful life and I think there was things I learned about it that I didn't feel were successful and there were things I thought we I had taken a huge step forward and we as the company as a group had taken a step forward but I think that insularity thing is a totally legitimate um you know critique and and to your point I think some people are like it's too insular and some people like I love that insularity it makes me feel like it's something I don't quite know but I want to know more of or and it really works in this exciting way but um, to answer your question more directly, I I do not think that's the be all end all of a way to work. It was a it's been an, a really special way to work, and I think has made helped me make a kind of work, and has been I think you know overall a really special experience for all of us. But I mean, almost in every show overall, there's usually been one other actor outside the company come in, like Susie Sokol and um, Seagull and Lucy Taylor now in Ancient Lives and that's such an amazing necessary infusion for all of us and then in, in my show in between Seagull and Ancient Lives was House of Dance and Jess Barbagallo was the only half straddle actor I worked with and it, it it felt like a really good step and I'll just say I love working with those people and, and they all do other amazing projects of their own and with other directors and other work and other music um, but I think at a certain point it can get that I work such a specific way that we do, you have to sort of continue to push yourselves to grow within that like that they don't think that I always want slowness because that's what we spent so long working on Seagull and like now when I'm asking them to do something different in ancient lives there's been a bit of a learning curve of like literally years of thinking I wanted a certain thing and years of me thinking I wanted a certain thing and us having some growing pains around this project a little bit of like trying to have a slightly different kind of acting in a more rich on stage dynamic. And I think we've really pushed to it. And I think it's what makes the piece when it clicks in really work. But I think, I think there's, it's, I, you know, I'm in the middle of thinking about how you work with the same people over and over again. And for, for all of you where the value in that and having to keep it really fresh is I think really important and maybe you do need to take breaks. I'm just wondering because it's like, I mean, I don't think there's necessarily a problem with making work that's insular in the way that you make work or even speaks to only a few, like only a particular audience. Like also there, I think there is a joy in being alienated sometimes because especially when you go to see shows that are just all about you, the whatever your core demographic is or whatever, you know, uh, if you go to see... I don't know, even if you just are going to see um, elevator repair service shows all the time, there's a certain thing, there's a certain reach, you know, and they're like, it's, they're famous. So they're like more accessible, I guess, maybe to other people. But there's a certain joy in going to see a show and being like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Like, I don't, 
know who these people are. And even if you don't like that experience, I think it's really healthy to have it sometimes. Yeah, I completely do. And I think that's a huge problem with how we contextualize theater. Because, Especially with regard to feminism. Yes, you know, as like and a, I lo- the visual arts are so much more interesting overall to me than theater. Because you don't know what the... F- fuck excuse me is happening in a painting you're just it's this coded thing that you get let into or like ryan tricarton videos right you don't know what's happening and i love that and it's this whole world created in visual art the best visual art pieces that are not necessarily accessible and to me that space of not knowing or finding what you find in it is the whole fucking reason to see art and so i totally get where th- it's just harder for people to see theater and especially my theater does a, a hard thing where it gives you just enough to think you, you have should get it yeah. yeah there's some characters and they're they're actually humans and they're saying things together sort of but then it's often cutting itself or purposefully breaking down what it does i mean i think ancient lives less so but ancient lives is still a really hard show i realize yeah, but that then again but I lo- that's what i want to see some you know sometimes yeah. i also love really obvious stuff and i love obvious tv so but then again at the same time there are certain like like demographics or groups of people who don't get any representation on, on stage, you totally, know? Totally. And like, that's something that pe- we should be trying to combat. And like, maybe we should st- stave against that insularity. Like I, I mean, th- I get why, uh, Tina would want to work with people over and over again, especially with a, a method of working that's uh, idiosyncratic, that's often associative. And, you know, the, when part of the most difficult aspect of the, uh, creating the work ends up being communicating with the people that you're working with, then building up long-term relationships, right, right. you know, it's in- yes. invaluable. Uh, I, that's how I work too. But I get also Eleanor's issue of, I mean, you have made work that has been incredibly inclusive when it comes to, uh, you know, putting a ton of women on stage, you know, and uh, putting queer people on stage. And, but in general, the, uh, the New York downtown experimental theater economy. Super white. It's incredibly white. And it's also, yeah. uh, it's not just the people on the stage, but the people in the audiences, because there is, uh, you have to really know where to look to find the show to go to, right? Yeah. There, there's not a ton of advertising. There's not, oh, I see there's mean, not yeah. like, uh, you know, a bunch of really good websites that tell you, I mean, there are, you know, you've got uh, Helen Shaw in, in timeout, magazine culture uh, bot andy horowitz right I mean, there are a few places but you have to really know where to look they're not the culture isn't shoved down your throat like a, a lot of stuff is like music being played on the radio or tv shows being advertised on giant posters in the subway is it i wonder how you feel about uh when you were taking your shows to europe and the the experience of the people that were there and how they reacted to your work them not being specifically a part of the like two or 300 people that are the same people that go to every show in New York. Well, they were still primarily white audiences for sure. Um, It's like when you like, so the work that we consider like the avant-garde or contemporary experimental theater and performance work has a much more mainstream place in Europe. Like that. So we bring a show like Seagull and into some like medium, small to medium sized French city and they don't know who we are, but they, the show sells out 400 seat four shows because they're that, the, that population trusts this cool theater to go see this experiment, new, 
new experimental company from the United States. So that would just never happen here. Like right. in the US, like we wouldn't, we couldn't leave here. And I mean, there's like the Walker, there's like the circuit of like places that show non-regional theater or off-Broadway style work across the country. But so they, that could happen. But these are like, uh, it just, experimental work just is what they see there and anyone will see it it's not like you're just the cool young kids it's just it's a mix it's clearly middle class people and they're clearly mostly white like I said but it's like it's as if it was the people here who see off-Broadway work yeah they see the weird American work and that's how it's programmed there said that she was uh she thought it was funny that people in Europe thought they were like disappointed in straight white men because it was a straight play they were like, what? Like, there was like, yeah. that's how much, how much more accepted that sort of work is. I mean, to, we've just had the, you know, this past week with all these European people are here in the city to see work. And we like, we've just had a really, really nice response to ancient lives from these European presenters. And half of them, like, I didn't really understand the language, but they just, they're like, can we see the script now? But they, they don't even lock into that in the same way the visuals they can lock into the feelings like yeah. they just have a different well, there's the approach sounds, to work yeah that yeah you don't even need American, to know. it's just a real diff- cultural difference over you know in many ways and what wait what countries are, are you speaking of specifically mostly france uh, we've been to france croatia and then um japan okay but um and lisbon portugal that's right Nice. But, and it's usually just across the board, it's a similar reactions or is there like a, deviance? well, I mean, I guess I was talking about that. These people come out like oh, everywhere yeah. we go, yeah. the shows are sold out. And again, that's, they don't know who we are. We're not yet ERS or the Worcester group mm-hmm. who, you know, have been traveling to Europe for almost 20 years and mm-hmm. are known. So, but they, they trust the programming of these cool theaters. So they're mm-hmm. like, come and see it. And um, yeah, across the board in those countries, they're up for seeing, what is, you know, a very specific kind of work here in the U.S. In more general contexts there. I have a a question about uh, the economics of um, putting this sort of work on here in New York. Uh, Because uh, just this past summer, um, the incubator shut down. And, uh, you know, PS uh, 122 still doesn't have a space, right? They're going to open something, I think, in 2016. I mean, they're they're actively, there's a re... um, they're rehabbing their space. So. But, but there had been a lot of, uh, you know, for decades, there have been, you know, money problems in uh, downtown New York theater. But it seems like, especially lately, and also with uh, people like uh, David Byrne and others uh, and Penny Arcade, criticizing the economics of how art is created in New York City right now. Calling out curators in particular, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, because, you know, there are people like young people who are students who are going and working on paid internships and, you know, propping up these theaters and doing a bunch of work. And then, uh, you know, they don't end up working in the field. And the the people who run the organization are collecting a salary and they have long careers. I, I wonder how you feel about the, the larger sustainability of economics in, in the field that you're working in. Yeah, I mean, the economics are extremely, extremely bleak and complicated. Uh, When you talk about, so there's a couple just, I think, nuanced differentiations. Like, really, the only places where someone at the top even has real sustainability is, like, the public or off-Broadway houses, like, Signature or something. Even, so PS122, even those, 
Vallejo Gantner's, I mean, I think he has his own financial situation in life that makes it possible for do that, but he would not be making real money in that role. So there's like the public, yes, and then Chocolate Factory, PS122, all of the real mainstays of the avant-garde scene are not like really top-loaded in the same way as the public. But it does not mean that the bottom, there's no money in it for anybody like and yet the Below. people that go to the shows are incredibly wealthy. Yeah. I mean, it's just because we have no very, very, very little government funding like they have in Europe and, you know, diminishing other funding for it. And there's just not, I mean, it's the ongoing conversation I have with peers and friends. Like people just don't see that value in live theater. They just, they'll pay a lot to produce movies and they're just not, so our budgets are very, very small to make theater um, with the exception of really big Broadway shows. So no one's, no one is making money on like downtown theater shows. It's not like the well, interns aren't getting paid, but the director is getting a ton of money. Most often the director is actually probably not getting money during the run of the show. And I can speak to experience. like, because someone like young Jean or I, like there's value we get from doing the show. So if we can get to a place where we don't have to be paid, we like, it's just, no one's But institutions money. are getting value in that they're getting yeah. brand I mean, recognition. Really, they're building up right. like coolness. They, they get to call themselves the, the place that put on the cool shows and that right. helps them raise money. Yeah, yeah. But they're still desperate too. Like when you start doing it, you're like, ah, why can't I get more from PS122? And then you realize they're out hustling the exact same way we're hustling. They're hustling, to to give their artists money it's just the system is super depleted and moma seems to have a lot of money yeah the I mean, whitney just again, built a new building that level public the big museums they have tons and tons and tons of money there's a huge divide i mean people in europe peers in europe cannot believe that we all do other jobs like they cannot believe that those actors also are bartenders and waitresses and tutors and they, they like they just don't understand the economics of our situation because this work goes over there and is in the same theaters where they're considered working actors or working tech crews and like that that's their job and they have health insurance i just i i have a hard time believing totally that there isn't someone out there making money because i see that there are people i mean do they all just have like private i mean there must be a reason that there's what nearly ten thousand people here in the city now for apap right yeah yeah, I, I think I mean, they, the they, those people aren't here for you know for the pizza. Yeah, I, 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 there's, there's. I think there are people that have the financial ability to have certain jobs in it, which so that's also a problematic dichotomy, of course. But that's how it happens, you know. I mean, I think the this is the Association of uh, Performing Arts Presenters. Is that right? They're they're the ones that are around going scouting out Tina's shows and stuff like that. And everybody shows. And everybody shows. I was at uh, ASCAT at the Upright System Brigade Theater last night, and their whole half of the theater, they were all wearing the little uh, badges from APAP. Mm-hmm. The thing is enormous now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, APAP is its own thing, and it's why Under the Radar and Coils sprung up. Yeah, so some of those people come to Hobnob at APAP, but they also sort of just do the festival circuit and don't necessarily necessarily click into APAP but the whole thing kind of gets called APAP time of year mm-hmm. I'm just I, I'm still sort of agog and ag- aghast at uh, <laughs> this like whole financial model and how it hasn't completely 
destroyed itself yet it just seems like a snake eating its tail i don't know yeah i, mean, I think that it there is. are real estate people that are making money off i of mean this. oh the, yeah that's a good point the yeah. Hu- yeah the huge i mean that you know obviously there's been in recent years there's been a very couple very very important like career grants like doris duke has been amazing they started a program giving all this money in the last several years like big but totally necessary and don't even get you that far but major grants to theater artists and I was talking to someone who said this era, like, you know, when it's all said and done, probably like 40 to 50 artists, maybe, you know, that has the Doris Duke, big fat money. It's in the billions, but it'll, I think it'll last over 10 years as they allot this money out to theater and jazz musicians. This very theater, jazz musicians, and maybe choreographers will be about 10 years of time that people get funded. And they're like, this will be a similar period of time to when the NEA like was doing its flush funding like art was really you can look back and a lot of cool stuff was coming then NEA funding ended and there was this will look back and be like oh cool so people were getting funded in a kind of decent way for this period of time around whatever 2008 to 2018 you know and then unless something big comes up like Doris Duke will be in another like and it's not even that much money but it's right. like a very necessary You're just so thing. used to none that even, yeah. yeah so I, that was really fascinating to think of those historical blips of someone stepping up with with money and the kind like of work that, that gets produced as yeah and because like yeah. doris duke is funding some real you know they're not funding mainstream people like i mean any baker's amazing and getting plenty of grants but they're not funding any baker they're funding sybil kempson and that's like right. totally strange bizarre awesome work you know i mean any baker's wonderful but that yeah. gets its support and so doris duke is really doing something cool and recognizing the like edges of that's of really the scene cool. so anyways i yeah it's it's a very big important and i don't know at all like what the resolution of this economics of yeah. theater and experimental theater is it's not positive hopefully we'll get to a place at some point where people don't need to eat or live <laughs> exactly <laughs> science yeah. is hard at work google get on it thank you so much tina this has been wonderful um i've really thank you for coming to talk to us or allowing us into your home to yeah, come talk thanks to you. Thanks, you guys. It was super yeah, fun to talk you. to you. Yeah. All, right, All right. This is Noisy Ghost signing off.